If you don't know me, it's because we haven't met yet. <laughs> I'm Gary Post. I'm the care pastor here at New Hope, and I'm uh, delighted to be with you this morning. Just wondered if there are any Ohio State fans in the audience this morning. I just needed to know if I needed to talk slower. Come on. Okay, let's get serious. Come on, we're not supposed to be happy around here. That's one of the questions we're going to talk about today. Is it okay to be happy as, as believers in Jesus Christ or, or not? We're supposed to be kind of somber about this. Last week, Joe Testa uh, delivered a message that was uh, uh, very encouraging about our hope beyond this life. 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, you know, we, uh, as Paul says, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We have a hope beyond this life that, that carries us above the circumstances. And, and, um, and that promise of eternal life with God is a powerful one and gives us great hope. What I want to talk about today is how do we conduct ourselves in this life? Um, and, uh, and are we supposed to be happy in this life? What's our hope for happiness? How do we accomplish happiness in, in this life? Let's pray about that a minute. Ask God to... To, to guide us. Dear Father, uh, you're the source of all joy. You're the author of happiness. And so we ask you uh, today that you'd guide us into your truth, that your Holy Spirit would teach us uh, about uh, what you desire for us in the area of our, our happiness and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in this life as we relate to the other people you bring us into contact with. We ask that you open our hearts to your word this morning, that you teach us what you would have us to know. Uh, in this area, and, and we ask these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, why is everybody so unhappy? And I say that because when you look around at our culture, when you, um, when you sit through a newscast, for example, things look pretty bleak, pretty grim sometimes. Uh, and yet, uh, the, the desire for human happiness is something that's almost universal. Uh, the the Anglican bishop and author J.C. Ryle, who's known to many of you as a, a church father. Uh, he died in 1900. And uh, he says this, happiness is what all mankind wants to obtain. The desire for it is deeply implanted in the human heart. Then again, from a secular perspective, uh, William James, who's said to be the father of psychology, he died in 1910. Uh, he said, how to gain, how to keep, how to recover happiness is in fact for most men at all times the secret motive for all they do and of all they are willing to endure. And, and so uh, we're all pursuing happiness in one way or another, but uh, why is there so little of it for some folks in particular? The Lansing State Journal recently featured a, a series of articles about the increasing rates of depression and and suicide, perhaps you saw it. I pulled a couple figures from it. They indicated, for example, that major depression from, uh, among children 12 to 17 years old rose 30% between 2005 and 2014. Michigan suicide rate increased by almost 33% between 1999 and 2016, that's 17 years. 
There are nearly 45,000 suicides in the U.S. in 2016, 1,370 in Michigan alone. Uh, some, some of those hit close to home for us, didn't they? Uh, we knew and loved some of those folks. You know, in my first career as a, as a state trooper many years ago, uh, I investigated many of those uh, suicides, and, and you always had to investigate them like a homicide until you were convinced that they were indeed uh, a suicide. And in, in the process, I got to know many of those folks after the fact, and, uh, and, and was acquainted with their, their, their grief and their sadness and the pain and despair behind each one of those suicides. I always wished, I've always said that I, I wished I had 10 minutes uh, beforehand that I could have talked with them and encouraged them uh, to continue uh, rather than to, to uh, leave this life. And that always, that always saddened me. People give a, a variety of reasons for unhappiness. Most are related to present-day circumstances. They cite difficult marriage or other family relationships, uh, financial pressures, disappointments, where they are in life right now, uh, grief and loss over a, a loved one, for example, or, or sometimes past abuse. They're carrying around with them baggage from uh, abuse in, in the past and or scars from past experiences uh, that they're, they're sad and unhappy about. Um, and, and while most cite difficult, um, difficulties in their own life, difficult circumstances as a reason, Randy Alcorn in his book, um, Happiness, uh, looks a little uh, deeper into it and, and says that uh, the research indicates that there's actually little correlation between the circumstances of people's lives and, and how happy they are. Yet when people respond to the question, why aren't you happy, they tend to focus on their current difficult circumstances. What that tells me is that there are uh, many people think that changing their circumstances will make them happy. In other words, if they made more money, they had a new car, they had a new spouse, uh, whatever it is, uh, change in their circumstances will make them happy. Another LSJ article looked a little bit deeper, and I pulled a quote from that as well. There's a, a, a man named uh, Varen Sony, who he oversees the Office of Wellness and Crisis Intervention at the University of Southern California, USC. He says this, he's noticed a marked difference in his conversations with college students. Uh, a decade ago, he said students were concerned about the, they were more apt to chat about big picture questions such as the meaning of life. And, and now students instead talk about a lack of meaning and a despondency. My observation is that as we lose our connection with God, uh, we lose our sense of place in this world, our sense of meaning and purpose, and, uh, and, and that often leads to unhappiness and, and despair. We chase various things that we think will make us happy, but uh, that, that ends in in despair. And Christians aren't immune from unhappiness, are we? In fact, uh, as, a, as a pastoral counselor, I, I spend most of my time uh, counseling with people. And I have yet to, to have somebody come to me and say, Gary, I'm just too happy. Would you, would you help me dial it down a little bit? <laughs> that, that just doesn't happen to me. Uh, usually, uh, people are, are unhappy, discouraged, uh, sometimes even, even depressed over something that's going on in their lives. And, and that unhappiness is very real. 
And uh, simplistic solutions aren't very helpful. Uh, in the church, uh, sometimes we're quick to say, well, if you just pray and read the Bible more, you'd, you'd be happier. Well, that, that's, not a, that's not a very helpful solution. We all need to pray and read the Bible more, but, um, but sometimes what that makes a person feel like is that they're unspiritual and that it's somehow their fault. You see that they're unhappy. And so adding to the shame and the guilt that they're probably already carrying around with them is not necessarily a good thing. You know, another misconception is that we're not even entitled to be happy as Christians, that we're supposed to kind of drag ourselves around, to slog through life from one hardship and difficulty to another until finally we're set free by death. I don't think that's accurate either. I think God has more for us than that. So solutions to unhappiness come through understanding the root causes of unhappiness and, and then what to, what to do about that. Randy Alcorn encourages us that there are th- actually things that we can do to become happier people. He says this, anyone who, waits for unhapp- anyone who waits for happiness will never be happy. Happiness escapes us until we understand why we should be happy, change our perspective, and develop habits of happiness, habits of happiness. Is that, is that a new concept for you? Uh, he suggests that, that happiness may be uh, a matter of new knowledge and changed attitudes and new habits. The psalmist tells us where the source of our happiness is. He says in Psalm 37, 4, seek your happiness in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. Okay. As a, as a general principle, how do we go about that, though, uh, in practical terms? And, and are we even supposed to be happy as followers of Jesus Christ? I think sometimes we're, we, we think of God as, a, as an angry parent who, who's always somehow vaguely displeased with us. Uh, but I don't think that's the, the case. I think that God wants us to be happy. He's happy, and he wants us to be happy as well. What accounts for Christians not experiencing the the happiness that God intends? Well, uh, again, Randy Alcorn says, I'm convinced a central reason, perhaps the central reason, is that many people who believe in God do not believe that God himself is very happy. And and how could anyone expect that knowing and serving an unhappy God would bring us happiness? In in fact, the Bible is full of instructions on on how to be happy in, in this life. On the other hand, uh, the Old Testament prophets, uh, prophet uh, Zephaniah speaks to God's happiness and joy toward us as his people. He says, the, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you by loud singing. Does that sound like a God who's happy and happy with us? And it sure does. He's, he's not just happy and joyful. He's happy and joyful over us as his children. That's, that's what God says uh, about his, his state of mind, his emotions, his love for us. Peter tells us the same thing in the, in the New Testament. In, in uh, 1 Peter 2, he says, God delights in us who belong to him as his, as his chosen people. In 1 Peter 2, he says, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is you and me he's talking about. And here's our purpose, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a good thing. That should make us happy. We're repeatedly told in, uh, throughout Scripture, and uh, especially in the New Testament, uh, we're told to rejoice in the Lord. And that is in, in who He is and what He is doing in our lives. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And, and then Paul adds for emphasis, Again I say, rejoice. If you didn't hear me the first time, rejoice. That is, be joyful. Be happy in God. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, he says again, uh, a prescription for life. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's how God wants us to live life. Our happiness, especially during hardship, is, is an essential part of our testimony to the world. John Piper says, if you ask me, doesn't the world need to see Christians as happy in order to know the truth of our faith and be drawn to the great Savior? My answer is yes, yes, yes. And they need to see that our happiness is the indomitable work of Christ in the midst of our sorrow. Happiness in Christ is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools. I often tell people who are enduring uh, sickness or, or other hardship, uh, be careful how you suffer because God may want to use you as an example to draw other people to Christ. When I was undergoing uh, radiation for cancer in 2011, uh, a nurse at Sparrow Cancer Center said to me, Gary, I can always tell the Christians they're the ones with hope. And many, many other folks are in despair. Uh, but Christians seem to have a hope. And that's right. That's what Joe was talking about last week. We have a hope beyond this life. We can grieve and, and have hope and joy at the same time. The, re the reason we can remain hopeful, even joyful in suffering, is because we know that God has a purpose in it. That's what James tells us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Another version says endurance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, what God is telling us is that one of his purposes in allowing suffering and hardship into our lives is to bring us to a place of, of spiritual maturity so that we can trust him to work out his larger purposes in us and through us. I always caution people when we're enduring hardship that it's not all about us. Sometimes it's about somebody else, that God is going to use our life, our example to influence as we walk through this time of, uh, of difficulty together. Leslie Vernick, in her, in her uh, book, uh, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong, she says, she says, in order to persevere through suffering, we must train ourselves to live with the conviction that our biggest reality is God's reality. And our truest truth is God himself. James echoes this when he tells us that we can actually experience joy in the midst of a difficult situation. How can this be? Because we're looking through two lenses. We're not only living in the present hardship, which may be painful, but in light of the view offered us by that wide-angle lens, which tells us that something good is happening in us while we are in the difficulty. He says that if we know that, 
In other words, if we believe that, we can experience an inner joy or inner calm even in the midst of a trying situation. You see, it's all about trusting Him when we don't know what the purpose is. It's all about trusting Him when we don't know how the story will end, isn't it? What I learned about uh, God in my experience with cancer uh, was when I got the phone call with the diagnosis, and some of you have been in the same position. When I got the phone call with the diagnosis, I, I, I just uh, prayed, and I, I said, Lord, I don't know why this is happening, uh, but I know three things about you. I said, number one, I know that you love me beyond anything that I can comprehend. And I said, number two, I know that you're in control of everything that happens to me and that no hardship comes into my life but what you allow that. And number three, that you desire only good for me. I know those three things, and so I'm just going to ask you to, to teach me. I'm going to give this cancer to you and ask you to, to teach me whatever it is that you, you have to teach me through it. And in retrospect, I understood that one of the things that God was trying to accomplish in me was he was using that cancer as part of my equipping for ministry so that I could minister to other people who were going through the same thing. And it began right away. You know, A.W. Tozer says this, the people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the wide world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. And I found that's what happened to me in Sparrow Cancer Center. Um, I found that, um, you know, so many folks are in despair when they have uh, life-threatening disease that it becomes uh, a target-rich environment of people who are just dying to hear about hope and, and to hear about a hope beyond this life. And, and so uh, it was really easy to share. People were very open about sharing uh, uh, spiritual things, and, and, um, and people even approached me and said, you know, you, you seem to have a, a certain peace uh, about what you're going through that I don't have, and would you tell me what the source of that is? So I had, people, I had a chance to lead people to Christ as a result of, of uh, being in Sparrow, Sparrow Cancer Center. I think God does that. He uses us in, a, he uses us, uh, in that way. Well, how, do, how are we going to be happy? Uh, what do we have to do to be happy? First of all, I think we need to change our thinking with regard to the true source of happiness and joy. And this is really countercultural uh, because of uh, the way our culture thinks about where happiness comes from. Again, Leslie Vernick speaks to this in the book, uh, Lord, I Just Want to Be Happy. She says, we've allowed our well-being and happiness to be contingent upon getting something from this world. We've not grasped that lasting happiness has more to do with the way our internal world is oriented than what we get from temporal pleasures. Heartfelt happiness isn't found in fun places, sinful pleasure, popularity, productivity, power, or prestige. Rather, it's the result of right that is truthful thinking, right relationships, right choices, and, and right living. Happiness is not something we receive. It's something we become as we love God enjoying him and his creation and growing in his wisdom. I think she really nails it there. I think she's exactly right. Our culture says happiness comes from what we own, the, the, the fun and exciting experiences that we can have in this life, it comes from other people and, um, and their ability to make us happy. That's the way our culture views happiness. C.S. Lewis saw things very differently. He says our ultimate happiness is completely dependent on God. 
God made us, he said, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it will not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Well, we can find temporary happiness, and God intends for us to find happiness and blessing in many of the gifts and blessings he's given us to enjoy. Our ultimate happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in life can only come from our connection with God as the source of happiness and, and joy in our lives. My, one of my favorite verses speaks to that. Uh, Romans 15, 13, I prayed this with many of you. Uh, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that powerful? Hope and, and joy and peace come from God. He gives us that as we trust him through the Holy Spirit, as we trust him through difficult times. He gives us the joy and peace that allows us to rise above our circumstances and to overflow with hope. Secondly, we need to see ourselves clearly as God sees us. Uh, and that's a, that's a tall order. We need to see ourselves in our, in our new identity in Christ. Uh, God speaks clearly about who we are once we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, at the end of this message, uh, Leslie and Michael are going to come back up. She's going to sing a great song that I love by Lauren Daigle. It's called You Say. It has to do with the struggle we face. The struggle we face over uh, believing what God says about who we are versus all the other voices in our heads. I often have to, uh, many people, when I encounter them in counseling, they, at first especially, they see themselves as uh, broken, guilty, uh, ashamed, unworthy, uh, failures, unloved, uh, all of which, by the way, are lies from Satan because God doesn't see you in that way at all. And so I have to remind them of how God sees them in Christ Jesus. That's the most important thing. God is the one who defines reality. Everything else, folks, is an, is an illusion in all of life. So this is some of, these are some of the things that God says about who we are in Christ. First of all, in, in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that is declared not guilty by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he sees us as people who are not guilty forever and people who are at peace with him. Uh, secondly, in, uh, in, in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now con no condemnation, that is no judgment, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God no longer condemns or, or judges us because of Jesus' sacrifice. We're forgiven. We're at peace. That's how he sees us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have, have, have come. God sees us as new and different people because of Jesus Christ, different people than we were before. Uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, Christ gave his life for us, and now he lives inside us. Uh, his, his character 
uh, is lived out through us if we allow the Holy Spirit to do that. This is all about who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe what God says or are we going to believe the other voices in, in our heads? Lastly, uh, about God's love for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And, and so we are, the Apostle John says. God loves us. He's adopted us into his family, the Bible says, as, as his children, as his royal princes and princesses. That's, that's who we are. That's how God sees us. So we need to choose what, to, to believe what God says about who we are, uh, not what Satan the accuser says about who we are or the other voices that would influence our thinking. Uh, thirdly, we need to change unrealistic expectations and take responsibility for our feelings and our, our behaviors. Now, that, again, is, is countercultural. I love what uh, Dennis Holy says uh, about expectations. He says expecting the world to treat you fairly because you're a good person is a little like expecting a bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? Life isn't fair. And if you approach, if you approach life with the expectation uh, that, that it's always going to be fair, that it's always going to treat you fairly, then, then uh, we'll be disillusioned and discouraged, won't we? That's the same point that M. Scott Peck met, uh, made in his book, uh, The Road Less Traveled, maybe 20 years ago or so. Um, and the first three words in his book are, life is difficult. That is, life is difficult. He goes on to explain that if you understand going in, if you understand that life is inherently difficult, full of hardships and challenges, uh, then you'll be much better prepared to, to deal with and overcome those challenges. But if, if you go into life with the expectation that it's all going to be easy and that you're entitled to an, an easy, carefree life, then, then you'll be severely disappointed, discouraged, uh, demoralized, disillusioned. Unrealistic expectations and false guilt about ourselves, others, what we can accomplish. Uh, they set us up for delusion and discouragement and uh, sometimes anger and, uh, and resentment toward God and, and toward others. For example, uh, uh, one person shared with me um, how she blamed herself because she should have foreseen uh, that, that um, she should have foreseen uh, 10 or 12 years ago that the person that she married would, would end their marriage. And I said, well, you can't foresee the future. How, how, how is it realistic to think that you, you could have known that? Don't, don't put that on yourself. That's false guilt and, and, uh, and unfair, unrealistic expectations. And we do that to ourselves. Uh, a child very often will feel guilt over a parent's divorce thinking that it was somehow their fault or that they could have prevented it. That's false guilt. Those are unrealistic expectations we put on ourselves that interfere with our ability to be happy. Sometimes uh, we have unrealistically high expectations of what we ourselves can accomplish, uh, especially in, the, in, in our own lives and in, in other people. And, and then we feel shame and disillusionment and discouragement when we fail to, to achieve all we'd anticipated. Sometimes our expectations were, were unrealistic in the first place. And when, when, we, we can't, uh, when we can't meet those impossibly high expectations, we're discouraged with ourselves. Uh, we can't do that. That interferes with our, our happiness. Sometimes uh, uh, one common unrealistic expectation is that because we're Christians, God will grant us an easy life. Everything will be rosy. 
But that's not what Jesus said. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Remember? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't, he didn't say you may have or, you know, you might run into a speed bump here or there. No, he said, you will have trouble. But he said, relax, I've overcome the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, an unrealistic expectation that others will always treat us fairly or, or they'll prop us up in terms of our self-esteem, our self-concept, that they'll make us feel good about ourselves, that it's their responsibility. That's an unrealistic expectation. It sets us up for, for disillusionment. Some marry with the expectation that it's their spouse's uh, responsibility to make them happy and that their marriage will be some version of Disney World. I, I caution premarital couples about that, that um, marriage isn't that. Marriage is a wonderful journey that we can have together, but it's not Disney World. And, and there will be conflict even in healthy relationships. So that's an unrealistic expectation. When I do a premarital assessment, there's a, one, one of the scales in there is called idealistic distortion. And it's the degree to which we distort reality based on our perception of how things will be. I call it the Disney World scale, uh, just because um, it, it looks at how the individual partners in a relationship uh, view whether or not, uh, view, the, view the relationship realistically going, going in. So we alone are responsible for our, our thoughts, our feelings, our choices, our attitudes, and our actions including the choice to pursue happiness in God in spite of the circumstances we find ourselves in. The, the Apostle Paul called the Colossians uh, Christians to, to live out the character of Christ, what Leslie Vernick would call right living. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, the Holy Spirit will empower us to live out the life of Christ, to, to see Christ's character evidenced in our lives in that way, but we have to choose to do it. The power is there, but we have to choose to do it. Fourthly, we need to choose what we think about in order to be happy. Paul's very deliberate about this. He, he says uh, we need to deliberately choose to think about what is positive and uplifting. In Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our culture says you can't control your thoughts. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God's reality is. We can control what we think about. In fact, we must if we want to be happy. Leslie Vernick speaks to the danger of the toxic stew of negative thoughts. She says this, brooding, ruminating, and rehearsing the negative events in our life will make us miserable. Excessive worry about what people think, how people see us, or what might happen to us or those we care about results in the, the same misery. If we want to gain emotional and spiritual maturity as well as greater happiness, we, we must learn to put our negative thoughts and emotions in their proper place. What I see again and again and, and what I try to help people with is something called rumination. It, it comes from the, the way a cow chews a cud over and over and over again. That's where the word comes from. The, the practice is about uh, cooking up this stew of negative thoughts 
in our minds, turning them over and over and over in our minds until they become our worst-case scenario, and then we act on that as if it were reality. Well, it's not objective reality at all, but it is in the, in the way that we think about the world around us, about our own life, about people, about happiness, uh, everything else, this toxic stew of, um, that contributes greatly to depression. Those who are suffering from depression a need to change that thought pattern in order to, to find happiness. That's one of the keys to finding happiness. They can't usually do that by themselves. They need some coaching with that. Fifth, we need to, to cultivate a close connection with God through spending time in His Word and, and in prayer. You know, when we're discouraged, sad, unhappy, even depressed, we tend to isolate, don't we? We tend to isolate from other people and we isolate from God. Uh, typically, when I ask somebody who's discouraged, well, uh, how's your relationship with God going? Uh, what are you doing to cultivate your relationship with God? And they'll kind of look down and say, well, that's not really going so well. I just feel so distant from God right now. We may feel distant from Him, but that's another case where our feelings and emotions uh, mislead us. God still loves us. We have to rely on what God says, not, not on what we feel in, in the moment. God loves us. He hasn't moved. He hasn't gone anywhere. And, and we're at this place where we're, we're discouraged. That's precisely the place where we most need to engage with God through his word and, and prayer. The Apostle Paul encourages us to get close to God by immersing ourselves in, in the word of God. And uh, he says in, in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Bible's a, a living instrument. I use that, the term instrument like a surgeon would. Uh, the Holy Spirit uses the Bible as an instrument uh, to change us uh, in, into the image of Jesus Christ, to reveal Christ's character in us. It's that kind of an instrument. C.S. Lewis says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to the thing that has them. It's God who is the source of all these gifts. That's why our closeness to happiness is commensurate to our closeness to God. You see, they track with each other, don't they? The Bible shows us uh, who God is, what he's like, and how he desires to work in our lives. And so what I, what I always recommend is a, a systematic approach to, to, uh, to reading the Bible. If you're not accustomed to reading the Bible every day, I'd encourage you to do that. About this time every year, I put in your programs a Bible reading guide. If you haven't used one before, I'd recommend it. Start out with the New Testament side. Read through the New Testament in a year. You get a couple days off every week in case you get behind. But the point is that you're, you're taking in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit can use that as an instrument. I find that uh, uh, when I do that every day, it, it uh, kind of aligns my heart with God's heart. And, and I, I see the world differently and He empowers me um, in, in a way that, uh, that wouldn't happen otherwise. This is about a, about a $6 um, journal that I got from Office Max. This is what I use. And so each day, I'll have... Uh, you know, I'll read through a couple chapters. I'll ask God to show me what he wants me to see. And, you know, usually there will be a verse or two that's highlighted. I'll, I'll jot those verses down. And, and then I'll, 
I'll jot a little couple sentences of an explanation of what I think that means. And then usually at the end, there's an asterisk. I'll put an asterisk where that's the application where I'll pray that God, yeah, make me more like this, or thanks for showing me this, or thanks for this bit of encouragement uh, today. But it, God uses it to align my heart with his, and I'd recommend this, that, that uh, you not only read, but, but journal, and, and then pray during that time. I think you'll find it'll make a, a tremendous uh, difference for you. Prayer is God's prescription for releasing anxiety and solving problems and giving to us his peace. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and I, I like the, the version out of the Good News translation, don't worry about anything, but in all your prayers, ask God for what you need, always asking him with a thankful heart. And God's peace, which is far beyond human understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe in union with Christ Jesus. I routinely pray that prayer, and many of you do as well, I'm sure, in uh, praying with people who are hurting, uh, to, to, to encourage them to give their problems to God and to receive his, his peace. One more thing that's a daily discipline, and that is that can, can disrupt our, our happiness, our, our intimacy of our relationship with God, and that is a, a confession of sin. Um, and and that, is a, that allows the Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify and transform us over time. Uh, the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, uh, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just part of a, a daily discipline. The Holy Spirit brings things to mind that we know aren't pleasing to God. We confess them, that is, we agree with God on them. Not that he needs to know. We're not telling him anything he doesn't know. But it's a mechanism that God's put in place to change us over time. It's part of our sanctification. He makes us more holy over time as we acknowledge sin. He has an opportunity to remove it from our lives and, uh, and refocus us on, on what he desires for us. And then six, we need to be deliberate about gratitude and, and demonstrating the love of Christ to others regularly. You know, we're called to a life of, of gratitude. Regardless of our circumstances, this is what that looks like. First Thessalonians 5, uh, Paul says, Be joyful always, pray at all times, be thankful in all circumstances. This is what God wants from you in your life in union with Christ Jesus. Nancy Lee DeMoss points out that our gratitude to God is actually what changes us in our hearts. She says gratitude has a big job to do in us and in our hearts. It's one of the chief ways that God infuses joy and resilience into the daily struggle of life. I asked a young friend recently <clears throat> how she works at uh, choosing gratitude, uh, uh, practicing gratitude uh, from day to day in her life. She said uh, she found that, that uh, she usually ends each day by identifying at least three good things that, that God blessed her with that day. And she's, she said, uh, I, I used to think that I, I couldn't come up with three, but she said, now I, I often have far more than three that uh, I recognize that God is, is doing in my life each day. John Piper says that the, the greatest danger uh, that we have is distrusting God's mercy, distrusting that God is good and good, for, uh, good to us, Right? Maybe you've experienced that. And, and Nancy DeMoss says that, uh, that gratitude is the greatest antidote to that. 
She says, I've learned in, in every circumstance that comes my way, I can choose to respond in one of two ways. I can whine or I can worship. And I can't worship without giving thanks. It just isn't possible. When we choose the pathway of worship and giving thanks, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances, there's a fragrance, a radiance that issues forth out of our lives to bless the Lord and others. Demonstrating the love of Christ to other people and serving them uh, is another way to demonstrate gratitude. And it, and it builds our own happiness. <clears throat> We're told in Ephesians 2.10, uh, we are God's handiwork. You and I are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Which good works are out there yet that God has prepared for you to do that he's waiting for you to take the initiative on, that he's waiting for me to take the initiative on. One of the biggest obstacles in overcoming discouragement and depression is that we become so self-absorbed, focused inward, isolated, and uh, isolated many times from the very people who could encourage us. And, and serving other people, demonstrating Christ's love in that way, uh, helps to shift our focus off ourselves and engage us with people who can encourage us and experience the happiness and joy that comes from serving someone else. So it is really therapeutic to somebody who's trying to recover from discouragement and, and get to a place of happiness. Research supports the wisdom of Scripture about that. Alcorn says, research has proven that if you want to be happy, serve others. People who volunteer and give become happier as a result because the, he, the key to happiness is to labor for the happiness of others. Those who feel happy are more productive, effective, and successful. Well, a closing thought. I, uh, I recently asked a, a friend who's been going through her own struggle over the, the past year or so uh, how she finds happiness and peace amidst the chaos and uncertainty of, of her life right now. And uh, she wrote me back and, uh, and uh, I asked her if I could share her words verbatim. This is what she told me uh, is the key to finding uh, joy and happiness for her in spite of her circumstances. She said, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's given to us, but I do believe we have to actively open our hearts and hands each day to receive it and use it. It's not a thought, a whim, a prayer, a wish, a try, a desire, a hope. It is not passive. It's not a one time and done. It's a daily grind. It is work. Words that come to my mind when I think of joy in the Lord are fight, train, develop, discipline, obey, do, educate, a schooling, action, practice, a wrestle, a chasing, a way of living, putting off and putting on and acting on a choice made a thousand times over and over and over and over until death. The beautiful part is that we're not alone in the work of it. The Holy Spirit is there as our helper. We are not alone. You can see why I, I admire my friend's walk with God. She exudes a, a joy and a peace in spite of what she's going through. And she's right, we're not alone. Jesus left us with this promise. He said, I've, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. We are not alone. And he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, the kind of 
peace and, and happiness and joy that we're looking for can be found only in, in our Savior. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask uh, Michael and Leslie to come up and share with us Lauren Daigle's song. It's all about believing what God says about who we are versus the other voices that we hear. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, we, I thank you that you're the author of happiness and joy and peace in our lives. And, and Lord, uh, you said that you're the God of hope, that you give us your joy and your peace through your Holy Spirit as we trust in you. So I, I'd ask that you empower each of us uh, to trust you uh, for who you say we are in Christ and, and that you'd also allow us to be a source of happiness and grace and peace and joy to the people that you bring us into contact with to minister to. In, in Jesus' name, amen.